You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina of 538 and GQ. Michael, I've seen two people this week ruffle feathers. The first was you with all of your blasphemous takes about Luka Doncic. really poked a uh, hornet's nest, I think, of Mavericks fans. And you got some people pretty riled up on our last podcast with a few of your takes. And we're going to run through those a little bit here as we do a mailbag episode uh, later this show. But there was also James Harden ruffling a lot of feathers this week, including my own. I've got to say, he kind of holds out uh, from the Houston Rockets, doesn't really report at the same time as a lot of his teammates. Finally, on Tuesday, he decides to show up. He's got to go through six days of coronavirus testing after partying in Las Vegas uh, and Atlanta, uh, celebrating uh, rapper Lil Baby's birthday and just having a a wonderful time as his teammates were uh, already taking the court in Houston. Of course, uh, new coach Steven Silas for multiple days had no idea where Harden was, hadn't communicated with him. It sounds like the uh, quality of the communication there is still pretty low. Meanwhile, trade rumors are swirling. We had a report today from The Athletic that said Harden is now interested potentially in the Milwaukee Bucks and the Miami Heat as well. So this is all coming to a head sort of right on schedule as we've been talking about for multiple weeks. Uh, But now it's you and it's James Harden who have the entire basketball universe upset. Michael, what do you make of the latest drama down there with your Houston Rockets? Man, what company? I'm honored. Um, actually, I'm, I'm not honored right now to be in the same conversation <laughs> as James Harden. That's not really who you want to be associated with. Um, I mean, Ben, this is uh, pretty unprofessional behavior, I, I got to say. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of reports about how, um, you know, the word empowered is used to describe superstars in today's league, but I think entitled is another one, and that pretty much is perfect for describing how James Harden has behaved uh, over the past couple weeks. I, you know, that he's not the first player to demand a trade from a situation where he's unhappy, and it is his right, I suppose, to do so. But to put his teammates in an absolutely terrible situation at these Zoom press conferences where they're constantly getting asked about um, his situation and his feelings, uh, putting his new head coach, Steven Silas, in a very uncomfortable spot and not even communicating with Coach Silas at all is, I mean, just like give the guy a phone call, give the guy a heads up. It's not his fault. Um, and what's really just uh, the worst part about all this is that it's in all likelihood James Harden will be uh, in a Rockets uniform on opening night playing for the Houston Rockets because it's so difficult to uh, find a uh, legitimate, realistic trade partner who's willing to give Houston what Houston wants. So it's just a really weird situation. And I mean, it kind of is, it's a little delusional as well. I mean, if you were to understand the situation and understand uh, the 
the environment and likelihood of you actually getting traded. I don't know if he would be behaving this way, but I mean, this this doesn't even get into like the skirting the COVID protocols and just not wearing a mask in public, which is just also really not what you want to see out of a person who has the influence and the platform that he does. So I, yeah, it's, it's a lot of, it's, it's very disappointing to see in general from him. It's all bad. There's no way around it, right? And I think that I've tried to defend Harden against a lot of criticism over the years. I think his actions this week are basically indefensible. There's no way you can be like, yeah, you know, it's no big deal that he's in multiple states not wearing a mask, uh, indoors, surrounded by lots of people, partying, having a great time, in close contact, absolutely increasing the risk uh, of COVID for himself and for everyone else that he came into contact with. And then potentially anyone else in the NBA universe who he has to go after he reports to Houston and and come in contact there. Um, It's just unacceptable. I mean, it's amazing, Michael. He reports on Tuesday. That's two weeks before opening night of the regular season, right? I mean, he's cutting this one awfully close. It's not all his fault. Of course, we're going through a rushed offseason, but I think his behavior is sending a very clear message uh, both to the Rockets and the league is basically like, sure, you know, uh, punish me, whatever you want to do, find me, suspend me, whatever it is, I'm daring you to do it. I mean, it seems like it's very provocative actions. I want to read you one email we got from a, a number of emails about Harden, and I want to get your reaction to it. It came in from Michael B., and I think that he's frustrated, and I think his frustration is shared by a lot of people uh, in the NBA universe, in the general sports universe, and you know everybody else who's following this story. He says, so James Harden has demanded a trade, lied to his team, failed to report to training camp, is out partying without a mask, and is blatantly disrespecting the NBA's health and safety protocols. If there was an unsportsmanlike MVP, the beard would be the unanimous winner. I'm not even a Rockets fan, but as a fan of basketball, this entitled, childish, spoiled behavior just really makes me angry. Harden has shown complete disrespect to his team, the league, its fans, and worst of all, to his teammates. I wouldn't be surprised if P.J. Tucker not Harden out if and when he does report to training camp. All right, Michael, take it down a notch. Uh, He continues, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. After all, this is a player that has always chased personal accolades over team success, always blames others for his own shortcomings, and has never made his teammates better. Now that I've been able to vent, I guess I should ask a question. Where does this rank among the most unsportsmanlike acts by an NBA player? So Michael's really digging in deep here um, with this question, and I I understand where he's coming from. I'm not sure I would go quite so far to use a few of those labels that he used, but again, Harden absolutely is putting himself first here, and we're in a situation where you know I think he understands that he's got a fair amount of leverage. You said that it's... um, maybe delusional or or not reasonable to expect that he would be traded here before the start of the season. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think this is the ultimate test of that sort of premise of like our organizations uh, in the modern uh, NBA capable of doing what's in their best interest, or do they simply have to serve the interests of their superstar level guys? I could absolutely see a situation where the Rockets feel like they have to just get rid of James Harden, trade him for whatever the best offer might be, absorb the public relations blow, and move forward without him. I'm really curious, Michael, if you polled the rest of the Rockets players, you know, you wrote about Christian Wood this week, you talk about some of these other guys who are new getting in. You even talk about uh, players like Eric Gordon and P.J. Tucker who have played with Harden for years. I think even rewind six months, if you polled them, you'd say, yeah, he's the show. You know, we're here to support him. We're trying to chase a title. 
Clearly, Harden doesn't believe they're a championship team in Houston anymore. He's made that abundantly clear with his actions. If you asked all these other players on uh, on his team, would they be okay if there was a trade? I think a lot of them would think, well, you know, this kind of ran its course. He's not happy. We don't want to play with him if he's unhappy, if he's not bought in. You know, his actions are speaking, you know, very loudly here. Maybe we should all just move forward as an organization. Would you agree with that? Or do you think his teammates still want to hang on to what they've been trying to do the last few years? I mean, if I were, I think if I were one of his teammates, uh, I would be upset at Harden, the person for the position that he's putting me in. And like, if I'm Eric Gordon or PJ Tucker, my own personal future um, and that of my families as well is tied to Harden. Because if Harden gets traded, there's a good chance that I'm not long for Houston either. There's really no use for me there. I'm old. I'm older than 30. I'm not the type of player who uh, is a part of a rebuild. So I'm upset from that perspective for sure. I if he if he you know reports and we're able to kind of have a conversation and put water under the bridge and then say okay let's be committed uh, to what we're trying to do here I think that Houston still has a lot of talented pieces and can make some noise I don't I'm not saying that they're like the championship favorite or anything like that but I would be able to forgive and forget if I was especially if I was one of those guys who. Uh, who has played with them and been through a lot with him, but it is very frustrating. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, it's, it's just not what you want. If you are one of those guys, if you're a Gordon, if you're Tucker, if you're John Wall, who comes in here and has told the media that you've had conversations with Harden and you're on the same page and all that, like he looks like a fool if Harden gets traded before, uh, before the season begins. Um, but I just think like, you know, you say that it is, uh, it, it is likely that he is traded um, and right for Houston to trade him before the season begins. I still stand by like this guy has two more years left on his contract and you know like the way that they've behaved as a front office and the way that they you know there was a report um, in that same article by the athletic uh, about how the Houston Rockets want either Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving in a deal for Harden, which is just like super bizarre. Um, Look, they're just they're of- just throwing stuff out there. Look, they have no leverage whatsoever. They've got to understand it. Look what they just traded Russell Westbrook for. It was a terrible deal from Houston's perspective, right? I mean, you're taking the biggest injury risk back in John Wall in the entire league, and all you're getting is a you know future protected first round pick in that move. They're just, they're desperate. They're, they're swinging in the wind right now and they're embarrassed too. And they're shook. I mean, they they didn't necessarily see all of this blowing up as quickly and ugly as it has. And they're backed into a corner and they're trying to generate whatever kind of market they can. You know, good luck with that. And they came out and said they're willing to be uncomfortable. I don't believe them for a second. (laughs) I think that they're panicked and that they're trying to figure this thing out. And they're really hoping someone comes along with a decent effort. They're not getting Kevin Durant for uh, for James Harden. You can forget about it. And they're probably not getting Kyrie Irving either. If I was Brooklyn, I would consider that. But most people wouldn't. It's just hot air and nonsense from Houston's side. They've got to get real honest with themselves, look in the mirror and say, you're going to get a bunch of draft picks and not very impressive players from Brooklyn, or in a best case scenario, you're going to get Ben Simmons from Philly or something worse than that. Those are going to be your offers. And you have to decide as a franchise, if you're ready to pull the plug on James Harden. I think if I'm Rockets ownership, you know, I inherited a really good team from Leslie Alexander, right? And I broke it. 
I mean, Tillman Fertitta broke it. Over the course of the last couple of years, Maury's gone, D'Antoni's gone, Chris Paul is gone, Russell Westbrook gone. That group is broken. So if you want to take back control of your franchise and you actually want to own it for the first time and not be um, you know, subjected to the whims of James Harden, if he's in a good mood, if he wants to play, if he's in a bad mood, your only move is to cash out on James Harden to make that trade. And even if it's a bad trade, to move forward. It might send you to the bottom of the standings. It might send you into an extended rebuild. But this current version of trying to make it work with him, you know, how is that working out for you? Not very well. I think we're kind of on the same page. When I when I said the thing about Kyrie and KD, my point was that it indicates to me that Houston wants a star-level player. They do not want to rebuild right now, and they have a star-level player in James Harden. That's what that report said to me. So if I have Harden under contract for another two years, I have all these uh, aging pieces around him who complement his game. I just brought in Christian Wood. I am speaking as the Houston Rockets organization. I am confident in John Wall, thinking that he is a better fit than uh, than Russell Westbrook with James Harden. We brought in Boogie Cousins. Like we're ready to go here. That's the mentality of the organization to me. So that's not like I, I just that don't would think be that delusional. They- I mean, look. I mean, John Wall's coming off. He hasn't played in two years. He's a worse fit with James Harden than Russell Westbrook. And DeMarcus Cousins has gone through multiple serious injuries, and even before the injuries, he wasn't going to be a great fit with James Harden. So I think that they're just grasping for straws here, and they're in a really tough leverage position. I think if they do try to go forward with this group, it's going to fall apart quickly. I would hope someone understands that, because otherwise they're about to get blindsided when they take the court in a month, and this group tries to put it together. I think uh, you know trying to go forward with that would be a real, real mess. And Michael, I'm not questioning what you're trying to say here. I'm just saying, look, let's be honest. What does James Harden look like when he's not a happy player, right? He disengages in the playoffs like we saw against the Lakers. And it comes to a situation where you're wondering why isn't he shooting? Why isn't he communicating with his teammates? Why isn't he hustling back on defense? Or he goes the other way and he just does his own thing and pretty much ignores everyone, ignores any coaching, puts the coach in an impossible position and puts his teammates just, you know, into the role of bystanders. I think that it could be very damaging uh, to their group if they try to go forward through this, right? Any hope that this group is going to have of, of kind of doing anything or building towards something in the future, you're just delaying if you if you keep James Harden around. He's made it completely clear he doesn't want to be there. He's not going to be bought in. He's going to play his own style of play. He's clearly avoiding any kind of a real relationship, you know, with his coach and Steven Silas. And it's an unfortunate spot. I think one thing that we have to keep in mind, ownership is responsible for the management of the value of its trade assets, right? And I think one contrast I would draw is like, look what David Griffin did with Drew Holiday, right? As soon as he took over that job, he realized, well, Holiday's not on Zion's timeline, so I'm going to have to, you know, prepare him for the possibility of a future trade. So you empower him as a team leader and a team captain for that season. You talk him up about how important he is to the culture. You make sure he gets all the minutes that he needs. And then uh, you communicate directly with him. Hey, there's a possibility that you're traded. And then when a team that's desperate like Milwaukee comes along and has a big hole, you're able to sell high on a Drew Holiday and you cash out. And what Houston's done is almost the exact opposite of that, right? They haven't had good communication with Harden. They've made some key personnel moves that angered Harden. 
They've waited here, backed themselves into the corner right before training camp and right before the season starts so that they weren't able to kind of get a deal done early. They've been reactive rather than proactive, and now they can barely even communicate with the guy, right? So of course you're going to be selling low, and you can blame Harden's uh, immature behavior, which I absolutely do. You can blame his reckless behavior um, with the mat- with a lack of mass and in the club, and I absolutely do too. But this is also just really poor management and really poor ownership, and I don't see a situation where you wait two months at the deadline and all of a sudden the offers are better because at that point you're just trading for, you know, Harden's even closer to free agency, right? So I think his trade value would actually potentially diminish by the time you get to, you know, February, Mm. March, because now you're only getting him for a year and a half. If I were them, I would pull the plug and move forward with whatever the next chapter is. Take back control of your franchise if you're Tillman Fertitta, because right now it's James Harden's team. (laughs) Um. I think that it's really easy to uh, like get mired in all of this off-court hullabaloo before like games are actually being played. And so if I'm putting myself again in Houston's shoes, I'm betting that Harden will not behave this way when games are actually being played. I mean, it does a disservice to him uh, by lollygagging, by not showing up to practice, to, by being unprofessional. Like, what message does that send to potential su- suitors that are trying to trade for him? And if his if his goal is to ultimately get out of town, playing his best basketball as possible is the way to do that. Um, I, see, I, so, go the, I go the other way. I feel like he's at a stage of his career where he feels like he has nothing left to prove. You know, he's already won three scoring titles. You guys know exactly who I am. You know what my skills are. Everybody knows I'm upset. If I tank personally for two months, there's still going to be people who are interested in, you know, betting that they can turn me around. Similar to the Kawhi uh, Leonard situation with Toronto taking the gamble there, right? I mean, GMs are always going to be willing to bet on talent and and to try to you know think about taking on a distressed asset. Now it's more difficult because uh, James's contract is so big, but I don't think that there's anything he can do on a basketball court, even if he comes in out of shape, overweights, not playing, not sharing the ball, anything like that. I think there's always going to be some level of a market for him. But it's not going to gin up the type of offers that uh, Houston's hoping for. They were talking about they wanted, you know, like three, four first round picks and like, you know, this star level conversation you're describing. That's just not going to be there. James Harden is a complicated figure from a contract standpoint, from a style of play standpoint, from a personality standpoint. And I think that he has meant everything to Houston. And now that relationship is damaged, in my opinion, uh, beyond repair. And they're in a situation where they just need to start rationalizing that and and coming to that conclusion that, look, this thing's done. It's reached the end of the road. And, you know, the faster that you move on, the better. So I guess like the other thing I would just bring up is that if my if I was Houston and my eyes were set on acquiring someone like Ben Simmons, I'm not going to be hasty right now and trade Harden to the Miami Heat for Tyler Hero and a bunch of picks. Like That's not really a smart move for me. I'm going to wait to see how desperate the Philadelphia 76ers get if they were to struggle or if they were willing to make a move after watching Simmons and Embiid kind of coalesce around that shooting. So like, there's just, it, 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 I just disagree because of the contract situation with Harden having two more years on his deal. Like, I just don't think there's that much pressure on Houston right now. I think that 
you said, you know, getting him now versus getting him before the trade deadline is a year and a half versus two years. Like, it's two postseasons either way, right? So, like, that's really all that matters if you're acquiring James Harden, you want him for the playoffs. So, it's like, I, I, I just don't think that the offers will, will dwindle. I think there will be interested parties. Um, and I think that Houston would be smart to let this play out. Maybe things do turn around. That is not an impossibility. The NBA is a wild place where a lot of unpredictable things happen. Maybe Christian Wood looks like an all-star. Like, you just don't know this sort of thing. Like, so I, th- I just, I don't necessarily think that uh, rushing to move him right now just because he's acting like a baby would do a great thing for your franchise all right we got a question from michael in albuquerque and we got a lot of questions from various michaels so i don't know if you're just attracting them because of the the name similarity or what's going on but he (laughs) says there's an advice column on slate called dear prudence and while the stories are often interesting in a complexity of life type of way the columnist answers are quite often some version of break up with that fool she has a quick trigger finger often ignoring the real world aspects of deciding there's no hope for this particular relationship Ben is the dear prudence of NBA podcasters, always ready to advise teams to blow it all up, no matter how thin the reasoning. So I want to push back on this one uh, for Michael and Albuquerque, because Mm. I think that if you're in a situation where you have a superstar level player and you're not positioned to chase a title and really get your your guy in that spot then you have to think about drastic actions that's basically my philosophy right don't get stuck in the middle don't allow a bad situation to fester and be proactive get in front of it um you know basically uh, fortune favors the bold is, is essentially my argument right and we've seen what happens if if you don't do that you know anthony davis sits around in new orleans he gets unhappy he forces your hand and now you're in a tough spot we can go through all the different examples that we would want to I think in the case of both Steph Curry and James Harden, drastic action was warranted uh, this offseason in in terms of retooling those organizations. I I don't think I'm saying blow up every single team every single time, but I do think that you have to kind of like, uh, you know, pick certain ones and say, hey, this isn't working. You have to be honest with your situation. And similar deal for Philadelphia. Like uh, to me, and we've had skepticism with Simmons and Embiid, both of us have, I think. I don't see any reason why they wouldn't trade Ben Simmons for James Harden right now. Do you? I know everything that Philadelphia said about trying to commit to Ben Simmons and everything else, but if they can actually execute a Simmons for Harden trade, no one is going to be thinking, oh my God, Philadelphia, they lied to us. They actually trade Ben Simmons. I can't believe it. They're going to say, wow, James Harden and Joel Embiid, these guys actually have a chance to win a title together. That's going to be the headline. You know what I mean? So... Why wouldn't they do it today? Why do we have to wait to see how Ben Simmons plays? We know how Ben Simmons plays. He played the same way for four years. I mean, if I was Philadelphia, the reason why I don't just trade Ben Simmons for James Harden is he is 24 years old and under contract through the next five seasons. And James Harden is you know, based on his behavior, if he's unhappy in Philadelphia for whatever reason, which I could totally see because Joel Embiid is not... Uh, Uh, has not proven himself to be the most dedicated individual to his craft, Uh, then you're just in this pickle where it's like, okay, we already traded one of our franchise cornerstones, one of our young franchise cornerstones for this guy who's 31 years old, 32 years old and disgruntled. Uh, what are we doing? That's that's so that's like why I would not trade Ben Simmons. I would be a little patient and I'd want to see how things look 
with a new coach, first okay. of all, and okay, so do a you, new do supporting you, cast. Do you believe that argument, or are you just making that argument? Because you'd, you'd trade Ben Simmons for James Harden, Michael. Come on. Well, we, we haven't had this discussion since, I think, like Daryl Morey started making all those moves. And I, I mean, I want to see it. I do. Like I want to see what this looks like, and there's you know this it's the it's like the preseason right now, so everyone's being super optimistic and and super positive in their public statements, but like I, the word out of Philadelphia has been very good about Simmons and how he looks and his confidence level, and bringing in guys like Danny Green and Seth Curry, just positive figures who've had success in this league, like uh, that has kind of improved morale uh, a little bit. So I, I mean, I would just be patient, I think, and maybe. You know, if you are ten and ten, or, or uh, you know, battling it out as a five hundred team, then you kind of reassess things, and and James Harden will still be there because you have the best trade ship here. So, um, that's kind of my stance on that. I, I would be patient because of the contract situation and the age situation. Well, are you coming into camp in the best shape of your life, Michael? It's that season, you know. Everybody else is. Do you, <laughs> exactly. Are, do you want to claim it? I, I am not in the best shape. I have a, a stationary bike here in this room where I'm recording right now that I try to hit at least three times a week. But besides that, no, I'm not in the best shape of my life. Oh, no, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, oh, tough. boy. Well, you might be doing more work than Harden lately. We'll see. Um, we got a question from Kane in the UK. Okay. He writes, I'm really enjoying the pod over here in the UK. Love the entertainment rankings this week, although I did have to tweet Michael about his constant Luca pessimism. <laughs> Why does Michael hate the future of the league? And then Kane goes on to write, I just wanted to ask what you think about the Harden situation and specifically how much is he to blame for his own lack of a championship ring? It seems to me that he forced Chris Paul out of Houston for an inferior player in Russ and that entire situation has backfired. So, um, Michael, when you're trying to analyze, I guess, Houston's approach to this and you're saying stand tall, stand tall, be tough, try to make it work is essentially your argument here. And um, while you're trying to make that argument internally, do you kind of hint at what Kane is saying and do you bring James Harden into the principal's office and be like, bro, you were the one who wanted to trade Chris Paul. I did that for you. It didn't work out. You've got to work with me here so that we can try to figure out another solution if, if we're going to go forward here. And in the meantime, you know, we've got to try to figure this out as as grown adults. I mean, do you try to play that card? Do you think that would work? And is there merit to that explanation? I think so. Uh, I, you know, I, I just keep going back to the his contract and the fact that there are two years. Like, I, if I was Houston, that would be... Like, that is my leverage right there. It's like, okay, are you unhappy? Um, would you like but, to sit out for two seasons? But don't you think it's... Past 30? I hear you. Don't you think it's at least possible that he just kind of tanks this season, you know? Just gets his numbers and checks in, checks out? I mean, is that really that impossible to imagine i have defended harden at every turn but i can completely see a situation where he goes out and gets 34 a game doesn't talk to a single one of his teammates never introduces himself to silas and you know just check back with me next year i could see that happening for sure sure i can see that happening but if i were james harden and i was you know checked out for an entire season this late in my career i just don't think that it does a service to himself as like a an attractive trade asset for a team that's going to have to give up its entire future to obtain him plus he would be on uh the last year of his contract at that point so it's just it's it's really tough to kind of to balance those two points you decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck 
So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Well, we have breaking news coming into the studio. I wish I had a sound effect, Michael, but Paul George and the Los Angeles Clippers have agreed to a five-year maximum contract extension that could be worth up to $226 million. So Paul George had been saying, I want to retire I want a Clipper, I want to retire a Clipper, and people had kind of been mocking him for those comments because he had been so, uh, you know, at various points over his career, kind of bought into other organizations and then, you know, maybe changing his mind here and there. Paul George is 30 right now. That extension is going to carry him deep into his 30s. Um, I think from the Clippers standpoint, after a, you know, kind of a rough bubble, after, a you know, an up and down offseason where they lost a number of pieces and there was questions about who their identity was, this amounts to a solidification type move, right? You're saying, look, we know who we are. We know who our core guys are. We're betting that Paul George can continue to to kind of play at an all-NBA or maybe even if you're lucky, a fringe MVP candidate level. And I think you're also trying to send the message to Kawhi Leonard that, hey, man, uh, why don't you resign with us here pretty soon, too? We'll take care of you, and we'll go forward with this group. Um, do you like this move from the Clippers' side, Michael? What do you think? Is there is there backfire potential given the size of the contract, the, the length of the contract, and obviously Paul George's injury history, too? Um, mm, yeah. If you're paying him that much money, you're expecting him to be a better postseason guy than he's been so far with the Clippers. Thumbs up or thumbs down on on all the factors here that we're talking about? If I'm the Clippers and I gave up my entire future for Paul George, essentially, I know Kawhi Leonard also was a factor there, but I'm exhaling right now. Like, that was always what you wanted from that deal. You always wanted to get Paul George for I get the rest of his career to get Kawhi Leonard, for uh, first and foremost, for the rest of his career. So I think that it's tough to... It's tough to judge this move individually outside of what happens with Kawhi because, you know, if you just get Paul George and if Kawhi leaves in free agency, then you're kind of stuck with, not stuck with, because I think Paul George is still really good, but you have this guy on a max contract and how are you kind of reasserting yourself as a championship contender, which is what you need to do to justify 
the boatload of assets that you gave up to get him. So, like, I think at the end of the day, my initial my initial reaction to this was that it's positive for the Clippers and it gets it gives them a little bit more flexibility with how they operate going forward. Um, but we'll see what happens with Kawhi. That's the big question mark here. Look, I think you do it if you're the Clippers because if he leaves, you're ruined, right? Uh, I mean, you spent all those assets to get him. So if he turns around and bails or if he just feels like, hey, maybe this isn't the right spot for me or whatever else could happen, he starts to look around at other team-up situations. Now you're left out in the cold without the type of material you're going to need to replace him or and, and without you know, a strong uh, recruiting pitch to somebody else uh, who, who might come along a couple of years from now. So I think it's a it's a reasonable, uh, you know, a solidification move like I'm describing. At the same time, I'd be a little bit, uh, I'd be a little bit nervous here. I'd still be sweating about that number and about, um, you know, what his capabilities are here going forward. You know, his stats took a hit last year. I think he should be in line, I guess, to, to bounce back the other direction this year. I never felt like he was completely in rhythm with some of the injury issues kind of in and out of the lineups. He's talked about the value of having a full offseason to prepare this year, which he did not have last year because of his shoulder injuries. I think that should help him um, and his Mm -hmm. production and and hopefully his comfort factor. But he's got a bond with Kawhi. And the most fascinating part about this to me is those two guys never really displayed that friendship or that on-court chemistry making each other better that we've seen from some other partnerships. Uh, Obviously, last year, I think LeBron and AD were sort of the gold standard for that. Uh, Russ and Harden, you know, at times it worked, at times it really didn't. Um, you know, if you're Kawhi, it's like, you know, this, your, your decision now, your free agency kind of comes down to like, do you still believe in your partnership with Paul George? Do you still believe in, in what the, the Clippers are selling? Or are you having second thoughts based on how the playoffs went, based on how last season unfolded or whatever else? Or do you just not even care? You just want to get your own money and, and keep doing your own Kawhi Leonard thing. I think that's also a possibility here too. So um, I don't see a huge downside. I don't think Paul George is going to scare Kawhi Leonard off necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess you do it and, and you go forward. But um, I, can I, I can I quickly jump in and just say something that kind of popped into my head here? Um, you know... A couple of years ago, it was like the the 2021 free agency class was going to be this bonanza opportunity for teams that were hoarding cap space. And now it's like LeBron's off the board. Uh, Paul George is off the board. If you're Kawhi, you're kind of like, I, I can be the the golden boy again. Like, that's pretty fun i can have all these teams court me like that's just i don't know if that's actually what's going through his mind right now um but that is pretty fascinating to kind of consider well also you've got Giannis's decision kind of still pending too right and so uh does he wind up becoming that golden boy or does he lock back in i also wonder if paul george's extension here is another uh piece of evidence to the idea that guys are trying to get whatever possible money they can in the current nba environment you know, yes. b- before we, we start heading into tougher times, whether it's a lockout or uh, labor negotiations or whatever else might come down the road, because we saw Anthony Davis surprise everybody with the five-year contract, uh, you know, prioritizing stability and total money over short-term flexibility. And now you're saying the same thing with uh, Paul George at well. And he's at a little bit more of an advanced stage of his career than Anthony Davis is. He's had more serious injury issues than Anthony Davis. So I guess his logic would, would make some sense there. Um, 
But at the same time, like he's recommitting to an organization where things did not go well last year for him, right? Uh, you know, all things considered, especially with the playoffs, he wound up, you know, c- catching a lot of blame, a lot of flag, um, you know, getting into kind of back and forth with his former coach, you know, over who was to blame for how the playoffs unfolded. So for him to kind of put aside all those feelings or uh, all that potential drama or even questions about is he over coaching in the locker room or is he trying to have too much of a voice when he's not, uh, you know, stepping up and, and walking the walk during the playoffs for him to say, you know what, I just want the cash out. Give me the money. I'm here. Uh, I think it says a lot about, uh, you know, the state of the the economy in the NBA. Mm-hmm. No, that's a really, really, really good point. And in kind of addressing what Kawhi is probably thinking about is someone himself who has had a lot of health issues in the past and who is the face of load management. I do wonder if he is actually leaning more towards the extension than heading into free agency and having teams uh, garner over his ability and his production. But like, I also wonder... Well, Michael, let's say you're Uncle Michael. You're not Uncle Dennis, but you're Uncle Michael. And Kawhi comes to you and says, what do I do here? You know, I'm at this crossroads. The first season with the Clippers went okay, um, could have gone better. I was an MVP candidate, but you know we, we, we crashed out in the second round in pretty embarrassing, humiliating fashion. We changed coaches. Paul just resigned. We lost Montrez Harrell. There's a lot of moving parts around here. Do I play this thing out, or is now the time to just you know take the money and run? If I'm Kawhi, I 100% take the money because... Like I look around the league and like, what situation is better than this? I get to live in San Diego, where I'm from. Um, I get to play for the wealthiest owner in NBA history. Uh, someone who is clearly willing to invest and do, you know, into issues that I care about, into, um, into the team, into the coaching staff, into uh, the medical staff, everything. And I have Paul George as a teammate and someone having someone that talented by my side is not that easy to come by, Um, especially, you know, if I were to enter free agency again, I'm not positive what landing spot would let me be the face of a franchise and also be next to another superstar. So if I if I was Kawhi, I would I would. Yeah, I would take this extension, especially considering my past uh, and the fact that I've missed basically an entire season with a thigh injury. So, um, so yeah, I, w- I would take the contract extension right now. Yes. I think I would too. I also wonder if these guys are looking at Anthony Davis leaving New Orleans, looking at what James Harden's going through in Houston and saying, look, a five-year contract's a five-year contract, but realistically, if we get three years into it, Stars are moving constantly. Am I going to be able to orchestrate a move if I need to down the road? Am I really sacrificing that much flexibility with the way that uh, you know superstars have been able to engineer these moves? I think that could be weighing on their their factors too. Like, you know, a five year contract doesn't la- lock you in necessarily, no matter what, to your current spot. I mean, we've seen you know guys move earlier, and it's you know starting to get earlier and earlier as you keep pointing out with with Harden having two full years left on his contract. If he does get moved, that winds up setting the new standard for, you know, what superstar leverage looks like. So, you know, maybe that's part of the calculation, too. It's like you can kind of have your cake and eat it, too. You can get as much money up front as you want right now during a tough, uh, you know, economic environment. And then if two or three years passes and things don't work, 
you know, you can go to front office and politely request a trade. And if that doesn't work, then you can demand a trade. And if that doesn't work, you can go public. And if that doesn't work, you can go public during a pandemic with no mask, flinging dollar bills around, then eventually they'll move you. <laughs> I think that could be part of the calculation here too. I'm not sure guys feel tied up anymore uh, like they might have in past years. No, that's another great point. Um, can I can I throw something at you also that I've been thinking about from the Clippers point of view? Bring it um, on. Do you think, like, with 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 regards to the Paul George extension, like, how much of it was? I know you're not a big optics guy, maybe not as much as I am, but this kind of looks really good for them. I think if I'm looking around as another fellow, like, talented NBA player, if I look at the Clippers rewarding Paul George, who's basically been a punching bag, um, who underperformed dramatically in the bubble, um, who had to deal with uh, some uh, stress-related, mental health-related issues in the bubble. Like, the Clippers could have easily turned around and treated Paul George as the scapegoat here um, and looked to move him and try to to, to rebuild on the fly or, or, or retool on the fly that way. Um, but instead committing to him uh, with such an extravagant payout, like, do you think that that's just like a good look for the Clippers publicly? Well, I think it's a big deal for them to take care of Paul George because they still have to kind of have the the Blake Griffin situation lingering, right? Like, I think the the Clippers burn Blake pretty bad in the view of Blake and other people, right? It's just like, <laughs> wait a minute, like, you're going to re-sign me and then trade me immediately? Like, I, I don't think that everyone around the league has forgotten that. So I think that taking care of Paul George, you know, that is a a real commitment factor. And it shows that they sort of mean what they have said about him because they've hyped him up all along. I never thought the Clippers were going to try to scapegoat Paul because uh, they were pot committed, right? I mean, they went so far in to grab him that, you know, once you've done that, that's sort of your guy. And turning around and trading him is pretty difficult to do. And especially if you're going to try to trade him for better value, um, you know, try like a bigger superstar. And I just never really saw them go in that direction. Can I can I take the 180 view and say, how surprised would you be if the Clippers pulled a Blake Griffin on Paul George at some point in the next six months? Um, I mean, look, I, I'll be honest, I could see it. Okay, it wouldn't shock me, but not in six months. You know, I think they're going to try to run this thing out a little bit longer. Uh, but Steve Ballmer is absolutely cutthroat and ruthless. He wants to win no matter what. But I, I, th- I still think internally they believe in this group. Like, I think that they probably believe in this group a lot more than the external conversation would be, right? And I think if any team, maybe if there's been an overcorrection in terms of you know, their, their um, you know, public conversation, you could argue it would be the Clippers, right? Just because of how ridiculously humiliating it was for things to fall apart. But, um, you know, fortunes can change very quickly. I mean, look back to the Lakers, you know, when they were the the messy team with Luke Walton, you know, parting ways and Magic Johnson quitting on the spot and calling Palinka a backstabber. And, you know, are they going to get Vogel as their coach or is it Ty Lu? I mean, all these different, you know, twists and turns. And now they look like this model of stability. I think the Clippers have, you know, kind of lived the exact opposite existence. And the truth is probably somewhere closer in the middle. They're still going to be an unbelievably talented group besides, you know, despite some of their losses this offseason. And if Paul George plays to his potential, he can be in the MVP conversation like I said, and and same thing for Kawhi Leonard. So um, hopefully their front office is thinking, look, we made this bet for a reason. Paul should play better this year because he's healthier. Uh, We got, uh, you know, uh, a good 
new voice on the sidelines to connect with these players. It was it was probably time for that as well. And we still believe in the vision. If they turned around to the deadline and moved him, that would be, uh, frankly, pretty disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think they probably learned something from the Blake Griffin experience too. I mean, look, they, they handily won that trade. It was smart on the basketball merits. It was the right thing to do and they should have done it again. But um, if you start to do that multiple times, you, you develop a, an even deeper reputation and it could get harder um, as you're trying to position against some of these other franchises in the Western Conference to kind of appeal to guys. So I do think you were right at the start saying it's a positive move from an optics standpoint. You took care of a player um, who has a lot of potential, who you know went out of his way to make sure he could come to your organization and kind of facilitating that trade with Oklahoma City last summer. And um, you're just you're on firmer ground. You're not heading into next season with all these question marks. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody knows what you're about and, and who your main guys are going to be. This is just really fascinating and came out of nowhere. I guess at the end of the day, and we're still trying to wrap our heads around it. But I, yeah, it's a it's a win I think for the Clippers, and I am very fascinated to see if Kawhi Leonard follows Paul George right now because if I were him, I think that that's what I would do. Well, here's a question from Brad. He writes in, I agree for once with Michael. He could be outrageous with his takes, but I definitely would not have had the Dallas Mavericks as the most entertaining team to watch this year. Luka is good, but he's not the face of the league yet. He still has to earn that. And he goes on to write, Philadelphia has a lot to show, and I guess we will quickly see if they are any good. If they come out and look the same as last year, I'm switching them off immediately. The Clippers could be like LeBron and Dwayne Wade's second year where LeBron just made himself the man. Hopefully Kawhi does that, and then the Clippers will be good. Michael, so what do you think now? Does this change your optimism about the entertainment value of the Clippers? Or, you know, you were already pretty high on them, definitely higher than me. Does sort of not having the dread of, like, could these guys leave or, um, you know, every single play, you know, gets kind of magnified, sort of like Kevin Durant's final season in Golden State. Like, I could have seen that playing out this year, right? If Paul George and Choir are both free agents and they happen to uh, snap at each other over a missed defensive assignment or, you know, let's say Paul George clanks a game winner at the end of it, you know, at the end of the fourth quarter, looks off Kawhi Leonard, throws it up and it misses, you know, everyone would, would look at that through the prism of free agency now they can kind of sidestep all that conversation, can't they? Or at least most of it, because at least Paul George is locked up. Like, there's certainly less pressure on the organization right now. There's definitely, I'm not going to say like Paul George, there was a fear that he wouldn't get a max contract as a free agent, because I think, I still think he would um, next summer. But, you know, locking yourself in, knowing 100% that this is where you're going to be. Uh, barring them pulling a Blake Griffin on you. Um, that's also just like a huge stress relief, I think, as well for him. So I think this whole team, like as long as like I think that teams do play better when they have or at least I would if I were a player, I would I would be more comfortable coming to work every day knowing, um, OK, so this is where I'm going to be with with uh, X amount of teammates for the foreseeable future. Like that would make me feel um uh, that would l- enable me to uh, function a little bit better at work every day. Um, so maybe that is to uh, to their benefit, to Paul George's benefit, to the coaching staff's benefit. Um, it just provides some stability. Um, and instead of this, this an- anvil hanging overhead uh, with their free agency situation. But again, like we got to see what happens with Kawhi because that's the better player, the more important player, uh, the more valuable player. So I, I want to see what happens with Kawhi Leonard. 
Yeah, I think there's some pressure relief for sure. And I think that, look, if they have to walk on eggshells around Kawhi Leonard, I think the Clippers are fully prepared to do that for the entire season, right? They're not going to worry about that too much. (laughs) Whatever it takes to keep them, um, that's been their mentality from the start. Okay, Tyler writes in also about your Luka take, Michael. He says, I can't believe I heard Michael Pina express more enthusiasm for seeing how Andrew Wiggins would fit in with Steph Curry than for watching Luka Doncic play. All right, hip Bayless, it might be time for you to detox from NBA Twitter, sell your fixed gear bicycle, and stop talking about how you were into bands before they all went mainstream. You are suffering from a severe overdose of Brooklyn. I look forward to you picking against my Lakers in every single playoff round yet again. So, Michael, you're getting roasted out here. Do you have anything to say for yourself in defense of your Luka Doncic takes? And, I mean, do you have a fixed-gear bicycle? How Brooklyn are you? Um, Man, this is a savage email. I mean, shout-out to Tyler for being both a Luka defender and a Laker fan. Just clearly, you know... um, really gets in on the ground up. I really appreciate that from him. But I, you know, we were talking after we recorded that episode, and I was joking with you about how I couldn't believe that Andrew Wiggins was like the third name out of my mouth to rationalize picking the Golden State Warriors as the most entertaining team. And so I, that was a mea culpa on on my part. I will, I will own up to that. That's kind of a silly thing to say. But I, I do stand by the fact that I would. I think that the Golden State Warriors will be a more entertaining watch than the Dallas Mavericks this season. I'm not budging off that point. Well, in the spirit of compromise, Michael, you do have me a little bit nervous about these Mavericks from the depth perspective, right? I, I think that was sort of your main point. I think you were trying to take a few shots at Luka just to get, get those shots in. But I think your <laughs> your main argument was that like they don't have a lot else there. And so if something goes wrong with him or Porzingis takes a while to get back or whatever else it might be, uh, they don't have enough other guys to kind of carry the weight. And, you know, maybe it could be, uh, you know, it could show through significantly kind of compared to last year where they were dealing with no pressure, no expectations, just kind of on a joyride. I think it's a very fair point. I still think they're going to make the playoffs. I still think Luke is going to be awesome. I still think they're going to be an incredibly fun team to watch. But I do think their margin for error is thinner than I I thought it was before you made your argument. So I'm going to give you credit there, Michael. I hate to do it. You know, I hate to give wow. you that kind of credit in public, but I'm giving it to you. All right. Nick asks us a serious question, and it's timely because we're talking about all these contracts and these superstar level guys' decisions. He writes, after this very sad Russell Westbrook and John Wall trade, isn't it clear that the Supermax needs a major overhaul? Teams who have handed out Supermax contracts have mostly been hamstrung. Teams who were wary of paying non-top 10 players a Supermax parted ways with long-term players and often fan favorites. So the truth is that it's not really helping the incumbent teams, especially if they're in small markets, from keeping their best players from jumping ship. What changes do you guys suggest need to be made? Should the Supermax be even harder to obtain? What if the NBA instead chose to reward teams who had Supermax eligible players with a cap space increase? And shouldn't the Supermax raises be done away with in exchange for fixed yearly amounts? So I've heard a bunch of these uh, ideas floated uh, by various people over the years. Michael, do you have a preferred method for fine-tuning the Supermax, which was sort of unveiled for the first time in the last collective bargaining agreement? I mean, it you know, I guess uh, we can. it's safe to assume heading into the next collective bargaining agreement that they will probably want to tweak it, modify it, or look at it as a way to uh, just improve it because it would be the, the second time through. Yeah, I mean, the big problem, just to boil it down with the Supermax, is that you want to 
convince your homegrown star to stay with you instead of leaving in free agency, but at the same time you do not want to be crippled with the cap. So the 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 most simple solution there would be to give the player the money. Um, but not have it count against the cap. So, for example, just giving someone 35, 35% of the cap, but having 30% count against the cap, if that makes any sense, or even uh, lower than that as a reward to the organization, um, and uh, uh, making it even easier, like 25%, just having it, making it easier for that team to... Uh, roll out a competitive product um, around and surround the player um, who you're trying to keep. Because if you're paying this guy all this money, it's just it's difficult to uh, have supporting pieces that make sense. So for sure. I so that's, I mean, yeah. if you look at it as case studies, you know, it's a Golden State with Steph Curry. It's Portland with Damian Lillard. It's Washington with John Wall. It's even Oklahoma City with Russell Westbrook. Once you start to put that gigantic salary on your books, you know, it's costing you the ability to get one or two guys almost every single summer just because you have to pay him. And every time there's huge raises, it just gets tighter and tighter and tighter to build around those guys. And so you're playing this like, you know, very musical chair style game of just bringing in whatever minimum salary or mid-level and below type guys to fill out your rotation. That sets up a situation where it's hard for the superstar level players to compete for titles. And you wind up, you know, sort of shooting the the team in the foot uh, in a way. It's, it's better for them to keep that superstar because he's iconic, selling jerseys, at least keeping you in the mix. But it's not necessarily satisfying that superstar player's desire to compete for a title every single year. So your proposal absolutely would address that or at least help. Uh, by giving them a little bit more financial flexibility. I think that uh, makes a lot of sense. I also think that Nick's idea about raising the standard so you can get a Supermax is important. John Wall shouldn't have been a Supermax player. You know, he's just not that guy. If you go up and down on, you know, current, like upcoming, you know, players, like who's worth the Supermax, we could say Giannis is worth a Supermax. Eventually, Luka is going to be worth a Supermax. You know, throughout his prime, LeBron's a no-brainer Supermax. You could say Anthony Davis, no-brainer Supermax. But there's going to be a certain line there when you Rudy get Gobert. to... Rudy Yeah, uh, Rudy Gobert, not a Supermax player, right? But Jason Tatum, nope. Supermax player, right? So you're getting to that yes. line right around the top 10 players in the league. And you want to see guys do it for multiple years. So I think their criteria of how they came about it, you know, asking for certain awards to be won or to, to make certain teams multiple times uh, was was good. It was in the right direction. I just think it needed to be a little bit stiffer. It needed to call out the John Walls of the world so that you don't have to commit. You don't, as a small market team, you don't feel obligated to commit to that guy. Um, on that level, because as soon as he signed the contract, he was never going to live up to it, right? There was never a situation where that was a good value deal. It was one the team had to do, and it bit them almost immediately because of the injuries. And even if he had stayed healthy, I think that would have been a tough one for them to stomach. So I'm actually in favor of both those things. Uh, Anything else to add there, Michael? Yeah, I mean, the opportunity cost would be in that situation where you're not paying John Wall the Supermax, like trading John Wall, right? Like, if he were eligible for... Like, we look at some of these other situations, like the Chicago Bulls had an opportunity to give Jimmy Butler um, a a heavy investment and and opted to trade him instead. We saw it with the Sacramento Kings and DeMarcus Cousins. And look where both of those organizations... I know it's like, you know, not the greatest sample size, but like both of those organizations 
are not in a great spot since they traded both of those players. Um, so I think that it's just a really complicated thing because you want to keep the fan favorite, right? Like you want to keep him with your organization. He has a tie to your fan base um, and there's a loyalty there. But if you do reward him, it's just so difficult to uh, uh, to build around him and to have a winning product. So it's such a catch-22 that the league really needs to figure out and i and i real quick i don't think that there's any singular way to solve this problem because at the end of the day players love their own agency and they love being able to uh live and work where they want to anyone would love that right so it's like when you're talking about money that is so high because of where the where the cba is where bri is right now i think that it's just really tricky to convince someone to stay based on 35% versus 30% of the cap, if that makes any sense. It, do, it does for sure. I mean, once you're getting to that supermax level, you've already gotten your, your rookie extension. And these days, the rookie mm-hmm. extensions make you wealthy beyond your wildest dreams, right? I mean, we're talking 150 plus million dollars. So you're already basically set for life before you've even decided on the supermax. So those five extra percent may or may not actually matter. I wonder if the NBA owners will come away from this current economic situation and and head into that next, um, you know, collective bargaining agreement, look at how players are moving a little bit too quickly. And I wonder if they'll try to uh, take away some of the freedom of movement from superstar level players. Like, could you see a situation where they say, guess what? Supermax contracts no longer have player options, right? Or it, you could get a, maybe an extra year if you stay with your current team, but that extra year comes with a team option so that they have a little bit more flexibility if there winds up being, uh, you know, an injury t- situation like a John Wall or it just, you know, gives a little bit more power, shifts the power back to the owners. You know, in a normal, like, healthy environment economically, you wouldn't anticipate those kinds of, like, major changes or restrictions that the players would have a lot of leverage to push back against it. But, you know, this thing could get pretty dark. You know, I don't want to be too much of an alarmist, but, I mean, they're negotiating these deals basically, like, month to month, quarter to quarter right now to keep the NBA going. And that can't go on forever. Like, eventually, they're going to come out of the pandemic. They're going to look around and say, wow, we lost, you know, something like four, five, six billion dollars over the course of multiple seasons. And, you know, we're not going to be able to make that up overnight. And there could be some owners who are really hurting who are saying, look, it's worth it to try to, uh, you know, reframe the economic terms of the relationship with the players and get a little bit tougher, get a little bit sharper elbowed in these negotiations. So these are just some ideas I could see kind of floating. I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if owners come away from, the James Harden holdout, the Anthony Davis trade request, um, you know, getting stuck with John Wall's Supermax contract and wants some really serious changes to this particular aspect of the the agreement, just because, um, you know, they're, they're seeing how it could really just, you know, tank organizations, basically, like, you know, take them out of the mix for multiple years as they deal with those kinds of problems. All right. Like, for example, imagine what happens to the Pelicans if they don't draft Zion, right? And they still have to trade Anthony Davis. They're in a tough spot for a long time. Imagine what's going to happen to the Rockets if they do follow through with my advice in trading James Harden. They're going to be pretty rough for a couple of years, right? <laughs> um, and imagine what happens if this Westbrook experience doesn't work out in Washington, which is possible, and Bradley Beal decides he's finally had enough. Where's that organization going to be? And a lot of their struggles could easily be traced back to that John Wall Supermax deal. So you add all those things up, I think there's going to be some real motivation from owners to to make some changes. I want to close with one final email, Michael. It comes in from Tyler. He writes, 
I'm writing to you from a cabin in the woods in Northern California. We're taking, we're talking life off of a generator, wood stoves, and secret dirt roads. Working on a weed farm, my crew each week eagerly awaits the latest open floor from tidings of the wide, wonderful world of the NBA. Also, we're all huge Blazers fans and we're from Alaska. Ben should obviously take a trip and hit me up for things to do. It's right up your alley. So here's the question, Tyler writes. What does the most exciting offseason in recent history do for the Portland Trailblazers position in the West? And not to be rude, but we're sick of the Blazers only being mentioned in the peripheral. I think the Blazers haven't had this talented and deep of a team since the Aldridge Lillard days. Throw us a bone and talk some Blazers. So these guys are living the good life, Michael. Well off the grid, it sounds like. Very safe and socially distant out there, hopefully. Um, And and thanks for the email to Tyler. Michael, what do you make of it? Uh, Did Portland have the greatest offseason they've had? In recent memory, are they a big time factor in the Western Conference? I know I, I had them pretty high on my entertainment value rankings, and you actually gave that one a thumbs up, which was no, mm-hmm. which was a little bit surprising to me because uh, I don't think they've ever scored that highly in my rankings previously. And you didn't want to push back at all; you were right there with me. So it sounds to me like you're ready to sell some optimism to Tyler. I am. I mean, I. I like the Blazers. I like uh, I like what they did in the offseason. I like their commitment to winning now uh, with Dame Lillard, uh, given just the financial payments that he's due and where he is at in his career. Um, I, I respect that. And, I, you know, th- some of the pieces that they brought in are great. Um, and some of the pieces they retained are great. Like, I really love, uh, obviously, uh adding Robert Covington I think that's a big upgrade over Trevor Ariza I think that's someone who we just saw him like become this ridiculously effective rim protector and those those might size lineups that Houston had him in like playing Robert Covington as a backup five with Damon CJ and Rodney Hood it's just like the lineup combinations are absurd they had Gary Trent Jr. have a breakout bubble performance and no one's like talking about him at all um they also just have you know speaking of their depth like this is one of those teams that honestly could have like hockey style lineup changes and not skip a beat um assuming that Zach Collins is healthy like like Derek Jones Jr., Rodney Hood, Anthony Simons, Gary Trent Jr., these are all guys who uh, might be coming off the bench for this team. So I like, I think they're really talented. Um, I think that they're really underrated in a lot of aspects. Yusuf Nurkic is still an underrated center in this league. Um, uh, and, you know, there is a little bit of a question mark with the backup point guard spot, but they have some assets if they want to go after someone like George Hill. So I, I like. I like Portland. Their their offense was terrific last season. I think their offense will be just as good this year, um, assuming that Dame is able to stay healthy. Like they should one hundred percent be in the the like I don't like if I was a tier of the teams in the Western Conference. It's so funny because I don't put them on the same level as the Lakers or the Clippers, but I put them with like five or six other teams that I could see maybe winning the championship and not being totally shocked. Yeah, I'm not willing to go quite that far. I think they still struggle to match up with the Lakers in some pretty fundamental ways, even after all the moves. But I think they actually match up with the Clippers really well now, at least better than they did. If they beat the Clippers in a playoff series, it wouldn't have stunned me. And, you know, saying that last year, I I wouldn't have gone there. Um, I think you can argue that they're deeper 
than Denver or Utah, which have been teams in the, in the past that have kind of relied on their depth in a, in a pretty major way. I think Terry Stotts has always done a great job of, you know, squeezing the lemonade out of the lemons, and he's had an awful lot of lemons to work with, you know, from players like five through nine in his rotations these last few years. And now those guys are real legit players. So it's a different type of challenge for him, but he's obviously a smart and pretty innovative coach. I think he's going to rise to that moment. I think if you're Lillard, you're feeling like this is the best group you've had maybe ever, you know, in Portland, uh, at least on paper. And I think also one other advantage for them you know, Lillard says the tone there from a leadership standpoint. Those guys seem to like each other. They bonded very well in the bubble. This upcoming mm-hmm. season is going to be a drag. You know, everybody's saying, oh, the players didn't want to go back to the bubble. It was going to be too hard, you know, away from their families, spending six months like that. This season's not going to be that much more fun. You know, the bubble is just going to be bouncing from city to city to city with even more risk of getting sick, right? You're not going to be able to go out and club. You're not going to be able to do any of that stuff. You're going to have to spend a lot of time with your teammates um, even more than usual. If you can't have team dinners, they have to be at pre-approved dining locations, right? So if guys don't get along, it's going to show through this year even more than ever. If you've got chemistry concerns, I think it's going to break you this season just like it broke a lot of teams, you know, uh, down there in Disney World, whether it was... uh, you know, the Sixers or the Clippers or, or the Bucks, all those teams kind of come to mind where they, they splintered a little bit. And, you know, Portland, you know, fought through, got to the play-in game and, and kept going and, and wound up surprising some people. So to me, um, that's going to be a benefit for them as well. And, you know, we're going to watch that one really closely, Michael, here in the first couple months of the season, which teams are handling the schedule, are handling the grind, are handling the protocols, because that's going to matter the whole way through. You know, talking to some of the NBA uh, you know, just decision makers around the league, they're not expecting some like Hail Mary vaccine that's going to get everybody back to their normal life during this season, right? It's starting to be rolled out around the country, but they're not planning as if the players are going to have access to that during the short term. Obviously, the players are in a relatively low risk group for the overall population. Uh, obviously, the players are you know generally uh, healthier and fitter than the average people, so they're not necessarily going to be in that priority line that everybody assumes they might be. And, you know, from that standpoint, it's going to be a, a tough and and also a, a quick arriving year, right? More back-to-backs, fewer days off during the season, still quite a bit of travel, um, even though they tried to cut the travel down wherever they could. So I guess the long-winded point here is chemistry, leadership, guys liking each other is going to matter. And that has traditionally been a strength for Portland. And I think if you look at the, the personalities they've got assembled there, you guys who are motivated to come through this season, I think Nurkic enters super motivated. Um, I think Gary Trent Jr., like you're mentioning, is, is hungry and motivated to take the next step in his career. You've got Roddy Hood trying to reestablish himself after an injury. And you've got Damon CJ who are just rock solid. That's a pretty good mix. You know, if they're the third seed in the West, it wouldn't surprise me. And if if they're scaring the Clippers in a playoff series and we're getting to, you know, rehash all that amazing trash talk between Beverly and Paul George and Damian Lillard from last summer, uh, that wouldn't surprise me either. So you don't think that the Blazers could beat the Lakers? I don't see it right now, man. I think that they're still on a, a tier by themselves. Who's guarding AD? Um, I mean, they just got destroyed by Anthony Davis in the playoffs, right? And they really had no answer for LeBron either. That series, to me, it was kind of, uh, you know, it was misrepresentative because Portland took that first game and, and the, the Lakers kind of did the feel-out thing. I mean, it was a not a close series, you know, after that game one. No, it, it, it was, it was a, a one-sided just smackdown. 
these are so, yeah the bubble is so weird like portland was running on fumes because of just how they got even got into the playoffs in the first place and then dame's body broke down and zach collins was completely unavailable but just kind of zooming out from portland i i want to go out on this question for you just you made me think about it based on what you were discussing with regard to players and teams really not having a nightlife um uh, available to them when they're on the road like do you think the basketball will be better with teams not having any off-court distractions beyond i guess the global pandemic <laughs> but like guys when they're on the road they have to basically stay in their hotel rooms uh, they can't mingle as they otherwise would there's not going to be uh guys who are super hungover uh, uh playing an afternoon game in la or something like that like do, do you think the basketball just generally speaking will be better than a normal season it's a great question. Um, I think you're weighing a couple factors. I mean, look, the bubble surprised us by the, the high quality, crisp quality of play, right? Um, and a lot of it, the players were attributing to no travel and lots of rest time. And so now you're taking those factors back, back away. So is it going to be quite as crisp as the bubble? I would guess not. I mean, ask yourself this, Michael, would you want to go on a road trip to Detroit, Cleveland, Chicago, New York, Miami, and not get to go out in any of those cities, right? And then you're just kind of bouncing. I mean, that would get really old. It would be hard. It would be a real mental test. And I, I think that heading into the bubble, we all underestimated the mental test aspect of uh, how it was going to weigh on guys, you know, it just whether it's false confidence or assuming that it's only three months or whatever else. This is a long period of time. There's going to be a lot of hassles, a lot of new rules. Guys are going to be testing positive in and out. I think there's a real chance that it has, you know, to, it's going to turn into a mess at, at various points for, for different teams. And so, I guess uh, I'm still saying pretty skeptical uh, in terms of the overall quality of play. It's possible that you know you're, you're not uh, getting such sluggish performances when it's a 12:30 tip in Los Angeles, right? You know the the Friday night uh, games that would or the Friday night activities yep. that catch up to guys. Maybe that is looking better, but overall, I think it's going to be a slog. I'm not going to beat around the bush on that one. Yeah, I mean, on the grand scale of things that are important uh, right now in society, and even with regards to the NBA, it's this is pretty low on the totem pole. But um, yeah, it's just something that kind of popped into my head as something that we could uh, could observe throughout the season. Well, it's a great question to ask, Michael. We got a whole bunch of awesome questions uh, from the Open Floor Globe, but we want even more. So email us, openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com. Michael is on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on uh, Instagram at Ben.Golliver on Twitter at Ben Golliver. Uh, guys, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. You can tap five stars for us. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael, all right, we got through the James Harden hostage crisis. We'll see if there's a resolution uh, maybe by this time next week or not. Either way, preseason games are coming right around the corner. Teams have started to report. They're going through their, their workouts and all that good stuff. The season is ramping up super fast we are less than two weeks away from opening night remarkable remarkable stuff michael all right until next week when we can pick up the pieces on all those topics and more i will talk to you talk soon ben.